I guess a lot of the doctors felt like if they got paid more, that that would be a solution to their their misery. Of course, the problem is is that most of them are financially illiterate and are just going to turn around and spend it. And we know that that doesn't actually make you happier. That actually makes your situation worse. So, what are some things people can do from a, a financial standpoint to to help avoid that burnout problem? You are listening to the Financial Clarity for Doctors podcast by Finity Group LLC, where we discuss the pertinent financial planning topics facing physicians and other medical professionals. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research Inc., a registered broker dealer, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here are your hosts, Rochelle Vanderzanden and Corey Janoff. All right. Welcome to Financial Clarity for Doctors. I'm Corey Janoff, joined as always by Rochelle Vanderzanden. Hello. For those of you watching on our website or on our Affinity Group YouTube channel, you might notice we have a third person with us. We're joined by a special guest today. Dr. James Turner. He's a board-certified anesthesiologist at Wake Forest. He's the author of a book titled The Physician Philosopher's Guide to Personal Finance. The 20% of personal finance you need or doctors need to know to get 80% of the results. He also writes a popular blog on personal finances for doctors at thephysicianphilosopher.com. You know him as the physician philosopher, but his good friends call him Jimmy. With that, welcome to the Financial Clarity for Doctors, Jimmy. Thanks, Corey. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Thank yeah, you very much for joining us. Yeah. Um, we did want to talk a little bit today about burnout among physicians and ways doctors can avoid burnout by getting their personal finances in order. Obviously, a lot of the stress for people is money related. But before we get too far into it, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself for people that aren't as familiar with your story? Yeah, sure. So, um, I guess it depends on how far back you want me to go, but I'm originally from Florida. I went to college in South Carolina, did med school residency and fellowship all at Wake Forest in uh, North Carolina. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, I was like most doctors, I was pretty financially illiterate up and through my basically my fellowship. And so that's when I started learning about this stuff. And it's about I guess it's been about four years now. And, um, and then I started writing about burnout and how that relates to financial independence and how financial independence can be a great tool to help combat that. And the reason that I linked those two together is because as I learned about this, I started talking to other people and realized that despite all of the great resources that are out there, there's still a just giant number of physicians who know so little about money. And what I found was that I had lots of friends and people that I met uh, who would finish training and actually expect their burnout from residency to be better and it would get worse. And so they would try to buy their way to happiness and make a ton of financial mistakes by doing that uh, and basically set themselves up to be in a position where their burnout was actually worse. And they were now not only in a worse position in that regard, but they're also trapped in their lifestyle that they now couldn't afford to leave. Um, so they were dependent on their paycheck. Um, and, uh, and so that led me to start my website and to, to write the book, um, that you mentioned before, but, uh, that's kind of the, the background. Awesome. Great. Thank you. And I know, you know, a lot of it you mentioned there from just observation of your peers, but during med school, residency, fellowship, or, or, or all those years you've been in practice so far, have you ever felt 
overworked, overstressed? And if so, what are some things you've done to help alleviate that and avoid potentially burning out? Yeah, so I, um, I'm, I'm pretty much an open book in life. So uh, uh, yeah, this, the last 12 months have actually been some of the hardest of my life. Um, I ironically was writing about burnout and financial independence and how those two things relate um, and then ended up becoming burned out myself. Um, and so I, uh, yeah, I started having all sorts of issues. I had, um, you know, fortunately none of them really came into work, but I had a ton of, um, anxiety, started struggling with depression actually, and then ended up finding out I have Graves disease, which is a, a thyroid disorder, um, that I guess your listeners would be familiar with. But, um, so now that that's treated, I'm, you know, doing substantially better, but I, um, I went through, you know, what I thought was stress-related burnout uh, from my job and had things in my job that weren't ideal. Um, and, uh, and so that ended up basically, you know, kind of rearing its ugly head at the same time that my, my Graves disease came about. So um, what I did, and actually I found this helped hugely, uh, was that we took care of the personal finance stuff early, um, you know, paid off our $200,000 of student loans in like 19 months. And then um, we um, continued to make uh, progress in that regard. So we had some some freedom that we didn't have at the beginning because our finances were now uh, in order. And then I started backing off at work. So I was working more than what was required of me uh, to help pay down some of those student loans. And that probably didn't help my burnout situation. So I ended up uh, I now get basically a day or two off every week, uh, which is how I'm podcasting with you right now. Um, and that has provided balance to my family um, and to, to my work life, too. So, um, you know, that that was probably one of the biggest things that was helpful to me. I'm glad to hear you're doing better. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I feel like a lot of our listeners are actually really early on in their careers. If you could go back in time to when you were in training and things like that before you started really looking into finances, is there anything that you maybe would have done differently? Um, yeah, I guess there's a couple things. One is that um, medicine has this way, and I'm sure many careers are like this, but it seems like, and maybe I'm biased because I'm, I'm a doctor, but mm-hmm. um, medicine has this way of just in basically making your personality and who you are about your profession. Um, you know, and so I think early on I would have done a better job of separating those things and making sure that I understood that my, my self identity doesn't come from being a physician. You know, I I actually don't even tell people what I do and like it, it takes like three or four questions to get to what I do when I, when people ask me that in public, um, you know, I'll say I work at the hospital. Oh, what do you do? I work in the OR and I'll try to ask them about them. So I don't have to talk about what I do. Um, because I don't want my entire uh, persona or you know who I am as a person to be wrapped up in my job. And um, that doesn't mean I'm not passionate about it. It doesn't mean that I don't, I don't care greatly for what I do. I actually am crazy passionate about what I do for a living. But um, I think that I would have focused on that early because oh. when things was cracked up to be, that ends up just just shattering things completely in terms of uh, – you know, what, what happens if things go, go south. So, um, that's probably one thing. And then, uh, I certainly would have made better financial decisions. I, I did all sorts of dumb things with my money, uh, before I knew anything about this stuff. So I, you know, was investing when I had 7% interest in 
tons of student loans and you know and made several other mistakes along the way so i think that i would have uh, cleaned that up a little bit and i probably would have come out of medical school with no debt instead of uh you know the six figure sum that i had because i decided to take it all out for living expenses that i didn't need yeah, yeah we don't get to people very common. early sometimes i think medical students is someone we probably should reach out to a little bit more because by the time we talk to them they've already taken out all the loans and there's not a whole lot we can do about it at that point. But I do feel like people need to just hear that they don't need to take all of the loan money that's given to them. Yeah, that's I think that's really important. I'm actually starting a fourth year medical student curriculum uh, on personal finances at Wake in January. Um, and so because I, I think that the earlier that you learn this, the the better off you'll be. Um, so that's that's certainly a big take home point is is not making those mistakes early. Mm hmm. Yeah, there definitely needs to be more financial education in the GME curriculums because, as you learned and seen, it's it's all too common the the missteps that people can make when they're misinformed. Um, you mentioned something about physicians, um, their personalities often being tied to their professions, which is definitely a, a common thing. And I feel like there are some doctors who maybe went into medicine for the wrong reasons. Maybe they felt pressure from family or they wanted a prestigious job, something of that nature. I don't know if there's any hard statistics on this, but if you had to guess what percentage of doctors do you think maybe went into medicine for the wrong reasons? I actually think that number is probably really low. Um, <laughs> so you know, the, the reason why is because in order to to do everything that's required to get into medical school, um, to get through medical school through residency, um, I mean the amount of just stress and terrible things that you have to go through in order for that to happen, uh, you wouldn't stick with it if it really wasn't something you were passionate about. Now, I will say that that you could make the argument that maybe they realize, you know, they went into it for the wrong reason. They happen to be, you know, gifted in terms of what they've accomplished in school. And then they get all that debt after first year and realize that, oh, I can't pay this debt back with any other job. So I'm just going to stick it out. I, I do know that that happens. Um, yeah. But I, I don't think that many of those people said, you know, I, I just wanted to becoming a doctor to make a lot of money. Um, I think that most of them went into medicine to, to help people. And, um, and then, you know, making good money was a, a certainly a byproduct. It was a consideration of, of what, you know, they'd expect to get when they finish. But I, I don't think that it was their primary, their primary goal. Um, but I do know lots of people that, you know, I've talked to that said, well, you know, if I could have changed jobs after first or second year, when I got to my clinical rotations in third year and realized it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Um, and now they have, you know, $200,000 in student loans. They're, they're stuck. Yeah. Um, that happens. I've talked to many people about that. Yeah, yeah, that makes like sense because yeah, you definitely do have to want it to to really make it through that far. That's for sure. Yeah. What are you saying, Michelle? Oh, I was going to say, I feel like the same thing happens with a lot of lawyers, too. You pay for law school mm. and then you're like, oh, <laughs> I've talked to a few lawyers about that. One other thing I was thinking is that do you feel like people sometimes choose certain specialties for the wrong reason at all? or? Yes. So that's actually been shown. Um, there are studies that show that uh, people's student loan debt and um, their 
perceptions of potential income impact what they go into and not only what specialty they go into, but it'll also dictate whether they stay in academics or whether they go into private practice and try to make more money. And so that, that's actually been borne out in studies. That makes sense. I know you wrote a blog post about a Medscape survey also about like 15,000 physicians, I think, that were asked what their biggest causes of stress were. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about the observations in that survey and what it talked about? Yeah, so it's actually really interesting. That that survey focuses on um, on both burnout and depression in physicians, and mm -hmm. so the numbers are are large. You know, pretty much every specialty had at least thirty three percent of doctors are burned out. A couple had as high as fifty, and I think that most people would say forty to fifty percent of physicians are burned out in general. And then they got into some really interesting stuff where they asked people, "Okay, great, you're burned out. I'm sorry, but what? Why? Like, like what's causing these problems?" and it was stuff that we all think about, you know, bureaucratic red tape and electronic medical records and non-physician tasks and having to sit there and write notes for four years because you're worried about medical malpractice and, um, you know, just a bunch of extraneous stuff that's related to the job that doesn't actually have to do with taking care of patients uh, and things that actually get in the way of that. And so the, the list of causes made a lot of sense. Um, it's what you commonly hear when you talk to most physicians. And then they, they asked an interesting follow-up question, which was, um, you know, if you could change one thing or basically, you know, if you had one solution to this problem, uh, what would it be? And instead of saying like, you know, having more staff to help with non-physician tasks or scribes or, you know, electronic medical record support, they said that they wanted to be paid more. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, being paid more doesn't fix any of the problems that they listed. Um, and so, yeah. so the, the reason that I think that they, they answered that way is because money is the one thing that people feel like they can control. And so I can't make an administrator care about me as an employee. I can't make them, you know, stop making me pay for parking when no one else does, or to, you know, give me my benefits back that they've taken or to, you know, get rid of the electronic medical record. That's crummy. Um, but if they pay me more, I can control that. And so um, a lot of, I guess a lot of the doctors felt like if they got paid more, that that would be a solution to their their misery. Of course, the problem is, is that most of them are financially illiterate and are just gonna turn around and spend it. And we know that that doesn't actually make you happier. That actually makes your situation worse. So um, it was just a really interesting study. Um, and, uh, and and it was, you know, like you said, 15,000 doctors that, that filled this thing out. So it wasn't like the, the end was very small. I think your takeaway is spot on. More money isn't going to solve the issue, you know, for the one reason you mentioned that, that people often will just turn around and spend it. But also, you're still not going to like those aspects of your job that you dislike. You might tolerate them a little more if you're paid more, but pretty quickly that additional compensation is going to wear off. And I would mm -hmm. equate it kind of a crazy analogy here. Like me personally, I hate blue cheese. Um, I would not eat it at all. So I don't know if you guys like it or, 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 or hate it. Um, I think it's kind of the, you know, you're one or the other. <laughs> if you paid me a lot of money though, I, I'd maybe do it for yeah. a short while, but eventually it, it's going to be like, you know what, I'm, you know, you could pay me a hundred grand a year for to eat blue cheese once a week. Uh, maybe I'll do it for a few months, but after a while, I, I, it's I'm still I'm it's I'm not going to like it anymore. So I'm I'm going to want to stop doing it, and eventually I'm going to have enough money to where I'll say, you know what, I'm going to not take that extra money. Um, sure. you know, find someone else to do the dirty work and eat it. 
So same yeah. thing with, with the, the stuff in medicine. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. For me, it's onions, by the way. I can't stand onions. <laughs> onions. onions and garlic are my go-to in every recipe. So. I love I'm garlic. Yeah. Yeah, to mushrooms. No mushrooms. <laughs> no mushrooms. No, 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 no. That's right. Which I guess that kind of transition to, you know, if you have control of your finances, um, you know, that would help you, I guess, maybe say no to some of those additional responsibilities that you otherwise might feel you have to take on if you feel like you need that money. Um, so I guess what are some things people can do from a, a financial standpoint to, to help avoid that burnout problem? Well, so it, it really, in my mind, comes down to two, two different things. So one is don't make the problem worse. You know, that's the, the first thing. Uh, and interestingly enough, people skip over that all the time. Like, you know, I, what am I supposed to do with my money? And you're like, well, I mean, you have a million dollar home and you've got two Audis in the garage and your kids are in private school and you don't have any money left over to save. Like, let's start there. Um, so, you know, let's, let's actually give you some discretionary spending that you can actually put towards financial goals instead of towards your, your current lifestyle. Um, but you know, that's the first thing. And, and then honestly, once you learn to live less than you make substantially less than you make, um, that provides a ton of freedom to not only accomplish your financial goals, but you can also take a hit in your income. So like, if you don't particularly love your job and you want to work 80% of an FTE instead of full time, you can do that. Like, I don't, you know, I don't have to to work nearly full time to to cover my my family's living expenses. Um, and the first year that we were out, I think we lived on less than half of what what we made. And so um, that allowed us to make huge financial gains, but it also allowed for tons of freedom. And we paid off all of our you know non mortgage debt. Mortgage is next. It takes a little bit longer, um, but uh, you know that that really is the the like the take home is that it provides opportunities it provides freedom and it, it prevents you from being trapped when you figure this stuff out so not making it worse is, is really a big part and then um, I, I have found that you know taking a day or two off every week is, has been helpful to me and I can only do that because my, my personal finances my you know those ducks are in a row um, and then um, you know it also if you have more discretionary spending you can start to outsource some things so um, if those non-work tasks are really dragging you down because you know, people like to talk about this stuff in a vacuum, but real life doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? Like, I mean, I'm married, I have three kids, my wife works full time. Um, and so when all this stuff started happening, my wife just went back to work full time. She'd been part time for like the six, seven years before that. So she's working 20 hours a week. Now she's working probably 40 or 50. And, um, and so now all of a sudden, in the midst of all this, I was picking kids up and dropping them off and cooking dinner and doing laundry and doing a lot of stuff that when I was in training, I wasn't doing. Um, and you know, my wife's career, she's an educator, um, is equally important to mine. And so I had to start, you know, doing a lot of stuff that I wasn't. And so the combination of all of that is really what led to a lot of my stress that I mentioned earlier. Um, and so I outsource stuff now, like I have a virtual assistant for like some of my blog work and that has just been hugely helpful. Uh, and I can pay for that because I have additional money that I'm not spending on an Audi right now. Um, you know, and so um, it, it, it's kind of all, you know, related, um, in one sense. Um, and then of course, if you have those financial ducks in a row, you also have the opportunity to change. 
you don't have to stay in that job. You don't have to stay in that position. You don't have to keep doing procedures that you don't want to do. And so uh, I affectionately created something I call a hell yes policy, uh, mm -hmm. where I basically only say yes to things that make me say hell yes. And then to anything else, I say no. And so if you want to be on some committee because you think I'd be good at it and I, I you want to leverage my skill set, but I'm not interested, I just say no. And and people have learned that, you know, and so eventually they stop asking. I do love that. And I, Corey actually just wrote a blog post really recently that I loved too. And he was talking about like, figure out what makes you happy and then figure out within your finances what you need to do to do more of that thing that makes you happy. And I do think limiting your fixed expenses so that you have more discretionary income to basically buy yourself time is very important because like you said, just outsourcing things that you have in your personal life to give yourself more time, like quality time with your family. And that kind yeah. of, it's so perfect. <laughs> yeah, I, I completely agree. And actually the, the tool that I use to tell people to do that exact thing is, um, it's called the three kinder questions. I don't know if you guys use that, um, but uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a life planning tool and basically helps people figure out exactly what's important to them. Because I, I think that maybe it's the philosophy major in me, um, but I think that a lot of people go through life without really being intentional. And so um, they just, assume that they know what makes them happy, but they've never actually thought about it. Um, and when you sit down and have that conversation, you, you, you start to find out that those things, those big things that limit your discretionary spending aren't actually what make you happy. Okay. You know, like the big house or the car or, you know, like that, that stuff just doesn't make people happy. Um, you know, and studies have shown if you make more than 75 to a hundred thousand dollars a year that yeah. any additional money, your basic needs are taken care of. Um, and so when you have those conversations, like you're mentioning, and, and you figure out what's actually important and you put your money towards those things, it's amazing how little is required to, to, to be happy. Yeah. yeah just trying to look, look back personally, you know, I was probably just as happy in college limiting on no income as I am today. You know, you have, you're sharing a room with a roommate and, you know, you're eating top ramen, but yeah. those you're, you're from a pure happiness standpoint, that was great. Um, you know, obviously I have more stuff now, yeah. but the stuff doesn't really improve the happiness. So that's so right. I think the key takeaway from, from that component is, you know, get your financial ducks in order. The, the more on track you are to being financially independent, the less likely you will feel stress and, and, and potential burnout from the financial aspects of your life. Obviously there's some things that work you may not be able to control that, that drive you nuts. But uh, but you can somewhat avoid those if, if your finances are in order. Now, I know, you know, speaking of financial independence, we're all big fans of that. But I've heard you mention before, you're not a huge fan of, of FIRE, which for those who are unaware, financial independence, retire early, F-I-R-E. So explain explain why you may not be the biggest fan of that aspect. Sure. So financial independence, we've talked about, you know, has a ton of benefits to it. Um, that don't necessarily involve you leaving your job. Um, and in terms of the early retirement aspect, so I'm 34. I finished training, I guess, residency four years ago, fellowship three years ago. And um, and so I am still, so I, my, my family and I are still probably 10 or 12 years away from financial independence, you know, in terms of just having strictly enough saved to retire. Um, that said, uh, that's not tomorrow. And so when you start having situations at work or life or whatever that are starting to burn you out, 
what that does if you start focusing on fire really early is it starts magnifying the things that you don't like so you'll start noticing all of those little things even more and your only goal is going to be to get to financial independence and then to retire early and so if that's that early retirement is your focus if that's your goal in life um, you're going to be miserable the entire way until you get there um, and so i particularly for people that are fresh out of training, um, it's just not very helpful uh, as, as an early focus. You can still focus on the financial independence piece, and when you get there, uh, great, you can retire if you want to. Um, but, you know, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily, um, I don't know, I, I, may, I may never completely retire. Like, I, I love what I do for a living, and I'll probably always do it for a couple of days a week. Um, you know, and, and I also don't think that with the burnout problems that exist in medicine, the answer is for everyone to leave. Um, you know, the answer is for enough doctors to become financially literate enough to figure this stuff out, to have enough money saved that they can then voice their opinion to an administrator uh, without having to worry about losing their income because it doesn't matter. They have enough for themselves to say what they actually think. Um, you know, and so. Um, the early retirement piece is, is kind of it's just tough to swallow, particularly early on. I, I, don't, I don't think it's wrong. Just for the record, I don't think it's wrong for physicians to fire. Um, I, I think that's perfectly fine. It's up to the individual what they want to do. Um, but I, I do think that as a as a person in academics who teaches, you know, young physicians and physicians in training, that it, it's not a very helpful thing to discuss. You don't want them too focused on that. No, because I, I I want them to be good doctors and take a great great care of people, and you know, I I want them to, um, and I think the financial resilience pays it plays into that. Like if you're not stressed out about money, you know, which the American Psychological Association said is the number one stressor in American families. Um, if you're not stressed out about that, then you can focus on learning and becoming a good doctor. And you might actually find that if you do this work life balance thing, you take a day off a week or find out whatever that balance is for you, that not only is your work life balance better, but you'll be a better doctor too, because you'll be refreshed and renewed and ready for work and and be involved in non-clinical stuff like research or teaching. Um, and so it's all about finding that balance, not escaping it. I don't think escaping is the answer. And that's, I mean, it kind of ties back to what you mentioned in the beginning um, with, uh, I guess I don't want to phrase this. Um, if you're feeling all that pressure and stress, you know, and most people get into medicine for reasons other than finances, you get into it because you want to help patients, you enjoy the scientific aspects of it, but then you actually get into it and some of the administrative uh, hurdles and some of the, 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 those aspects of your job just weigh down on you. But if you, you know, are on track for financial independence, you can structure your life to do more of the things that you do like and less of the things that you don't like. And like you said, you'll have a renewed, uh, refreshed experience and probably be a better doctor. And from Michelle and I's perspective, we would prefer doctors who are better doctors if we get sick and need to go see a doctor to get treated versus someone who's sure. just trying to race to, to a point where they can leave because then they may not necessarily be, you know, be, be giving us the most appropriate treatment. They might just be prescribing the, the, the procedures that reimburse them the most. So, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, it's a, it's a double-edged sword because um, at the same time, I 100% completely support and encourage any physician who finds himself trapped in a position where the administration refuses to change to absolutely leave. You know, like if our culture and our system is not going to change, it's going to continue to burn out doctors and a doctor day commit suicide. Like if they're not going to fix that problem, I've got no problem with the entire workforce firing and um, so that our country will finally fix the issue. 
Um, you know, so like, I, I don't want to make it sound like I don't understand where these people are coming from because I, I get it. And, you know, I really actually really get it. Um, but I, if we don't have to get to that point, that'd be great. You know, if we could salvage medicine and take good care of patients and make doctors happy at the same time, that'd be, that'd be wonderful. Yeah. Get um, back to doing medicine my pipe dream. for the reasons you enjoy medicine. Um, yeah, that, that'd be fantastic. What a novel idea. idea. Yeah. <laughs> would be novel. I know there are some other things that obviously drive stress at work too. So, I mean, there's the administrative hurdles and all of that kind of stuff. But for a lot of physicians, just the nature of being a doctor, you see some things that are not fun. And I think for people that surround doctors and talk to doctors daily, it's kind of a sensitive subject. It's not something that we necessarily want to talk about with physicians because they might not want to talk about it themselves. So how would you suggest people in a physician's network support them without being overly intrusive? Like, is there any way that you can? So, um, well, first let me back up before I answer that question. So the, the, the terrible things that happen to, to people, to patients, um, or the system that prevents you from taking good care of people, um, whether it's administrators or insurance companies or, or whatever's in the way, um, that's what causes another term called moral injury. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. Um, but you know, many people in this burnout space prefer to use that term because burnout implies that it's the doctor's fault that they're not tough or resilient enough. Whereas moral injury is actually probably more apt description of what, what actually happens because, um, these things happen around us. And then as a byproduct of that physicians become, you know, morally injured or, or burned out. Um, and so I think that if you, if you, approach this in that lens, it's, it's actually really better from a support person's perspective. And the reason why is because instead of it looking like that doctor has a problem with them, you can start to understand that it's actually the system around them that prevents them from, you know, succeeding or being normal or not burned out or, you know, what have you. And so, um, one thing they can do is get involved. And so this is going to be dependent upon the, the institution that they're in or the residency program or, wherever they work. But, um, I know that, um, I, I recently visited a, a hospital at UNC and they have a program where they bring people into a simulation center and then show the, their support person, whoever they define that to be, um, basically what they do for a living. They let them intubate dummies and put lines in, and then they, they have a code, um, simulation where, uh, you know, they code somebody, it's a, it's a, you know, a SIM, but, um, and the, the person dies and then they debrief after that and discuss what that's like. And I imagine I, I haven't just having that described to me. I know that that's probably a, a wonderful experience for everybody. And the reason why is because the way that doctors approach that situation is completely different from normal people. I mean, normal people would be horrified, like, Oh my God, someone just died. And, and we have to just go take care of the next patient. Like if I have a patient die in the operating room, I can't just like throw up my hands and quit. Like I have to go take care of like the next patient needs a pre-op, you know? And so like, I got to go evaluate them. Um, and so that's, that's just, it's a different reality. Um, and so being involved is one thing, having peer support. So for support for the actual support person is also really important. So surrounding yourself with people that, you know, are, you know, significant others or spouses or family members of the, the person that is burned out, um, you know, having f other friends that are in that same situation is helpful for them because they can talk and commiserate and have, you know, shared experiences. Um, 
And then I, I think that probably probably the most important thing, um, my wife ran, came across a blog post. And I, I really wish I could remember where this was um, when I was in training. And this was super, super helpful to her. Um, so it talked about approaching this from like a team a team sort of aspect or team sort of uh, point of view. And what I mean by that is when your significant other who's a physician comes home late, um, that is not something that they wanted to happen. Um, that's not something that obviously the spouse wants to happen. Um, but what happens in most typical or traditional situations is that uh, the spouse will get mad. They'll say, you know, you're home late again. It's the fourth night in a row. Like, why, why can't you just ever be on time? We like dinner's cold on the table. Like, what, like, what, what are you doing? And it's not like that person chose to come home late from from work. Like, you know, someone probably died at the hospital, or you know, something terrible happened, or they had a situation that they couldn't get away with. So instead of attacking the person and making them not want to come home, which is not your goal, right? Your goal is to make home a place of, you know, refreshment. Um, you know, you can commiserate and say, hey, you know, what happened is just is everything OK. And so if you approach it from that that team atmosphere, instead of, you know, getting mad at the person because medicine sucks sometimes and it is what it is, um, that that's that proves really helpful for both the support person because they have a better point of view and also for the per the burned out doctor or the person that's in the midst of it. Um, so I, I guess those would be the three things. Get involved, have some support for the support person themselves and then, you know, treating it like a team. I'm sure there's like some physician spouses community group or, you know, the various hospitals or is. there's Facebook groups too, but you know, it definitely good. is that good to be able to get in person and do that. So yeah, I think support is huge for, for everyone. Um, you know, having someone that you can vent to talk to commiserate with, like you said, so kind of transitioning a, a little bit, um, you know, how can, setting goals, prioritizing what's important to you, help keep things in perspective and avoid potentially going down a, a path that could lead to moral hazard, moral injury or, or burnout. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I, you know, those kinder questions really help you kind of figure out um, your why. And can you tell us a little bit more about that, Jimmy? Sure. So, um, so there are three questions uh, and they basically were created by George Kinder, who's a, a life planner. He's a, I think he's a CFP. Um, that's a life planner. He creates this uh, institute where he teaches people how to do this. But the three questions are uh, meant to help you sort through this stuff. And the first one is basically, you know, typical question. We've all thought about this a little bit, but if tomorrow you were financially independent, money wasn't a thing, you're financially secure, what would your life look like? So. Would you go to work? Would you not go to work? Would you, you know, go on vacation permanently? Like, would you sell your house? Would you still live where you are? That sort of thing. Like money doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want. What does life look like? And that's usually where people stop talking about stuff. Um, the second question is uh, you go to the doctor and you find out that you have a terminal illness and you're going to die in the next five to 10 years. So you could either die on the first day of year five or the last day of year 10. You don't know when it's going to be. Uh, money is a thing. You're not financially secure in this situation. Uh, so looking forward, knowing that you're going to die, you're not going to have any pain, but you are going to die. Uh, what would your life look like? Would you change anything that you're currently doing? Would you stop doing some things? Would you start doing others? What would you, 
you know, really start focusing on knowing that your, your timetable is now set. Um, and then the third question is a kind of a natural conclusion to that, which is that you're going to die tomorrow. Um, and looking back, what would you be really glad that you accomplished? What would you regret not having done? Um, what would you, um, you know, what legacy would you leave? Would that be important to you? Like what, what are, what are, what do you think about when, when you're faced with that situation? And when you go through those questions, you know, preferably over like a bottle of wine or something at a restaurant, you know, but like you're, ta you're talking to, you know, your significant other about these things and having that conversation, you're naturally going to leave out all of that other extraneous stuff we talked about earlier. Like that stuff just doesn't matter. Houses and cars like that. You're not talking about that. You're talking about your family and your kids. You're talking about trips that you went on or you didn't go on, you know, experiences. Um, so you start figuring out why uh, you care about all this personal finance stuff. So it's important for a financial thing because it gives you the reason for what you're doing and why you're doing it. So I think that the why is really important because it helps you stay on course. So when things get tough and you know you, you look at your finances and you have to make tough decisions, if you go back to that, you'll remember, oh yeah, this is why we're doing that. We wanna spend more time with our kids while they're still in the house. We want to be able to go wherever they go when they go to college. Like if, if one of our kids becomes an amazing Olympic gymnast, I don't want to have to be working as a doctor at the age of 55 because or 45 even uh, because I, I need a paycheck. I want to be able to go travel wherever she goes and go to all of her meets. You know, like I, I don't want to miss any of them. And so that's important to me. That may, may not be important to other people. That's, you know, one of my things. Like I just want to be able to be around my kids. Um, and so knowing that why helps us stay on course. So when we decide to, you know, do our backdoor Roth for the year, instead of, you know, taking a $12,000 trip, uh, it's a little bit easier to swallow that, you know, cause that money's just going away, you know, particularly as far as my wife's concerned. <laughs> so it, it helps us, you know, really stay on course. Um, and the other thing too, is that when you make these financial decisions and, uh, you're trying to keep the right perspective, it, it really helps you to focus on being content with what you have right now so if you can't be content right now in the journey the end is not going to be some magical you know pot of gold at the end of the rainbow where you're just you know suddenly happy like that that's not how life works you, you meet a milestone and if you weren't happy getting there you're not going to be happy once you meet that milestone and if you haven't learned that lesson yet you, you will um but it doesn't just magically get better. So you have to learn how to be content now. So it not only focuses things on the actual important things at the end, like what your goals are, but it also helps you stay on course and it allows you to, to enjoy things while you're in the middle of it. Um, so that's, that's, that's kind of the, the big, the big thing for me. So what makes you happy? <laughs> I heard time with your family, anything else or anything specific about that? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, really it comes down to, faith, family, and friends for me. Um, you know, I, I enjoy giving to other people and um, I enjoy serving other people. And then I enjoy being around my family and friends. And so that, that's usually going to involve an experience of some kind. Um, so I, I like being active. Um, so, you know, we'll be playing golf or, you know, playing with my kids or writing. Um, I love to write. Um, so all those things make me happy, but I think what really makes me happy and, and, a business sense is, is teaching other people. So I, I love watching the, the light bulb moment where, you know, someone that's in training or someone that's never heard about personal finance or financial independence, like the light turns on and they're like, I've never thought about that. Like that, 
that's unbelievable. Um, you know, I, I really love those moments and, and just being a part of people's lives and, and so that their life can be better. Um, that's really what makes me happy. And I think there's one thing that you mentioned a tiny bit about giving. I think legacy planning is very important for some people too and is a big motivator. Just wanting oh, yeah. to be in a position where at the end of their life they can leave something behind to a cause that's important to them. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think that that, you know, that that can be impactful the entire the entire way through. You know, are you giving now? Are you going to give when you're retired? Yeah. Are you going to give to your kids? You know, I think giving is a is a big part of the personal finance community that honestly gets ignored. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of people talk about financial independence and fire and, you know, putting all this money away so they can retire early and they don't talk about, you know, giving to anyone else. Um, and so I think that's really important, but yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And then why is money important to you? <laughs> so m money to me is just a tool. Um, money itself is not important to me at all. Um, money provides opportunities and um, and ways to design my life in a way that is meaningful to me and that allows me to give generously to other people um, so they can live the life that they want to live. And so ultimately, money is um, not important to me. What is important to me is doing all the other stuff. Unfortunately, in our society, in order to do that, you have to you have money. Um, and so it's just it's just a tool, but it's, it's, it's not it's not the it's not the ends. It's the means. Right. I love the way you answered that because that's, you know, people that I think get stressed and maybe burned out just focus on the money aspect and rather than what money allows them to do. And if you can focus on the why, the what's important to you, and then structure your finances to focus on that and do more of that, that's ultimately will lead you to the promised land. Yeah, absolutely. Amy, do you have any other words of wisdom for our audience? I don't, I don't, I, no, you're good. I, I, I think I'm all, I think I'm all wisdomed out. Yeah, that was a lot of wisdom already. <laughs> before we let you go, where can people find you if they want more of Jimmy, aka the Physician Philosopher? Yeah, so you can find me at thephysicianphilosopher.com. You can subscribe to the email list there and choose to get emails once a week or with each post every day a post comes out. Um, I'm also on Twitter, uh, and my Twitter handle is terrible, so just search for a physician philosopher and you'll find it. <laughs> it's okay, Fizz Philosopher. <laughs> we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes. So, so thank good. you for joining us. Much appreciated. Yeah, yeah thanks for having me. That's your day. Thanks. You, you guys too. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing podcast at thefinitygroup.com or by following Finity Group on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Finity Group LLC. You can follow me on Twitter at Corey Janoff CFP or on LinkedIn under my name, Corey Janoff. You can follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Finance or on LinkedIn as well. Check out all the podcast episodes on thefinitygroup.com slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out our blog, thefinitygroup.com slash blog. Thanks for listening to this episode of Financial Clarity for Doctors by Finity Group, LLC.